0: Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter.
1: I present Professor Joe Stiglitz. Okay. Well, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here and, and to to uh, see, I, I say, so much interest in the issue of inequality. Uh, in a way, I, c- I can't help but say, I, I wish th- uh, that magnitude of interest had been shown uh, last Thursday. Uh, the the uh, you know when you write something, you always hope that something uh, will get uh, a reaction, and uh, when my book came out, uh, I was actually a little bit pleased. Uh, that uh, The Wall Street Journal wrote uh, a, a uh, uh, article, a review of the book, uh, and they were complaining about my complaining about uh, inequality. Uh, I think they thought that there should be two more inequality, and I thought there was less, so we had a, a disagreement. Uh, the, let me spend a, a minute talking about my uh, the origins of my own interest in the subject. Uh, I grew up in uh, Gary, Indiana, which is uh, a town on the southern shore of Lake Michigan, uh, the history of which really reflects the the history of industrialization and deindustrialization in the United States. Uh, It was founded in 1906 as the largest integrated steel mill in the world. Uh, It was a real company town. Uh, It was named after the chairman of the board of U.S. Steel. You can't be more... Of a company town than that, and uh, uh, but it was a, a, a in some ways a very progressive town. Uh, the school system was uh, led by somebody called Will, Willard Wirt, who was a protege of, of John Dewey, so it introduced a lot of very progressive ideas, but even at the period when I was growing up, which which was the uh, late 50s, uh, you couldn't but help notice the high level of inequality in this industrial America. Uh, You couldn't help but notice the high level of discrimination, economic segregation, uh, the fact that episodically uh, the parents of my classmates would be unemployed, uh, there was a lot of labor strife. Be, there would be strikes. What I didn't realize at the time was that was the golden age of capitalism. Uh, that was as good as it ever got. And if you, any of you were at, at, at Piketty's talk last week, one of the major, major contributions of Piketty's work is to point out that there has been a high level of inequality at, uh, in not just the United States, but in most advanced countries, except in a short period from sometime around uh, the 30s, particularly uh, the end of World War II and uh, 1980. And I'll come back and talk about uh, why, uh, what it was that was characteristic of that and what ha- has happened uh, since. But that experience of growing up at this high level of inequality... Motivated me, I mean, it really, really uh, engaged me as a, as a young kid. Uh, I had intended to go on and uh, to go study uh, physics, uh, that's really what I wanted to do, but I, I, the, the, the inequality, the problems of inequality kept gnawing at me, and, and so um, I switched at, at, the, uh, at, at the end of my uh, career at Amherst College uh, to study uh, economics. And I wrote my thesis. Uh, At the time, I I wrote my thesis on uh, the distribution of income and wealth. Now, you have to understand at the time, and until actually very recently, uh, the economics profession has been very hostile to any discussions of inequality. It's not just that they ignored it, and they did that systematically, but they were actually hostile. Bob Lucas, who was one of the, got a Nobel Prize, he's a professor at the University of Chicago, reflected an attitude that is very widespread. And he said, you know, one of the most poisonous su- subjects that economists can talk about is inequality. So it's not surprising with that kind of uh, attitude that economists ignored it in the standard models that, that uh, economists used uh, before the crisis. Uh, there was no discussion of inequality. In fact, they assumed there would be no effect of... The the distribution of income was was simply not important. Well, uh, I published uh, my thesis, uh, the main chapter of my thesis, in a journal called Econometrica. Uh, And uh, I still think, as I reread it uh, recently, uh, that it provided uh, the definitive treatment of the subject... Uh, I, I still think people should, should read it, but the point I wanted to make about this is that uh, just a few years ago, about four years ago, Vanity Fair asked me to write an article about inequality, and uh, that got read by a lot more people than my Econometrica article. So the point I I wanted to make about all this is is that uh, if you're uh, a young scholar, uh, if you want attention to your work, you ought to be publishing in Vanity Fair, not in Econometrica. But that Vanity Fair article uh, really summarizes a central thesis of this book, The Great Divide. Uh, The title of that article was Of the 1%, For the 1%, and By the 1%. And that short sentence, short title, really summarizes an important aspect of inequality. It's not about economic forces. I'll come back and talk about that anymore. It's not about economic forces. It's about politics. It's about how politics shapes our economy. And it's being shaped now by the 1%. For those of you who haven't... uh, uh, Spent a lot of time reading American history. The title uh, was, an, uh, was an echo of a, a speech that every young American has to learn in the middle of the Civil War between the North and the South of the United States. Uh, President Lincoln gave this famous address called the Gettysburg Address, and we all have to study that. And the critical line there was he was trying to justify why we had gone to war against each other, why, why we were fighting that war, and his, his basic line was whether government of the people, for the people, and by the people will perish from this earth. That was a little bit American-centric to think we were the only place where, it would, uh, where this was going on, where democracy... But the point I was trying to make for the American audience was that, in fact, it had perished in some sense. But not through a war, but through a failure to have a real democracy working, that we, it was no longer a government of the people, for the people, and by the people, but a government of the 1%, for the 1%, and by the 1%. Well, that article itself led... Uh, The New York Times to ask me to curate a a series of articles which we called uh, The Great Divide. And the point of these articles was to bring to the American people the nature of the Great Divide that was dividing our society and many countries around the world. That there were these huge divisions between the rich and the poor, and the division, as you say, you know, the 1% became the slogan of, of, of uh, uh, the Occupy Wall Street. It was a division not between the middle class and the upper class. It was a division between the 1%, or as one, uh, the data actually shows, the one-tenth of 1%, and the rest, the 99%. Um, and this was, a, 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 as I say, a fundamental shift in our thinking about what the nature of American society was. Because we had all thought of ourselves as the middle-class society. We had created a middle-class society. And in fact, many of us you know, prided ourselves of being the first middle-class society. But that was in the 50s, in this golden age of capitalism. And by now, by you know, the beginning of the 21st century, it was clear that that wasn't the defining characteristic, that we had uh, not grown together. We had actually grown apart. So uh, this book is we, we began as that sort of uh, series of articles I wrote in the New York Times, which I, didn't, I think did succeed in, in awakening an awareness of, of this great divide in the United States. And there are many, many uh, uh, discussions of how uh, American leadership has spread this to other countries all over the world, uh, and one of the other themes is that while America uh, has excelled, it has the highest level of inequality of any of the countries in the world, uh, the countries that have followed the American model are not falling far behind, and of course, the u k is among the countries that have been following the American model in fact. In the rest of the world, we it's referred to as the anglo american model, uh, not angela merkel but anglo american <laughs> and and uh, uh, that uh, is uh, something that should be very troubling uh, here in the u k because uh, things have gotten uh, much worse. so what I try to do in, in the book is talk about the 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 dimensions of inequality, the causes, the consequences, and the policies uh, that might enable us to do something about it. So in these few minutes, what I want to do is very, very quickly go through each of these topics and and just touch on on a few of them. As I said, there's been this enormous increase in inequality, uh, and the, it has uh, multi, multiple dim- dimensions. Uh, there, there is uh, more money uh, at the top. Uh, at the beginning, uh, I, I, I mean, in Reagan, when Reagan in 1980 started pushing for the kinds of changes in economic policy, uh, it was a, there was an awareness that those policies would lead to more, more inequality. Um, the idea was that uh, you lower tax rates at the top and you uh, free up the economy, you deregulate and the hope was, the idea was that it would, yes there would be more inequality but the size of the pie would increase so much so that everybody, even those in the middle and the bottom would be better off. They would get a bigger piece even if they got a smaller share. Well, We've had a third of a century now of this experiment, and we can see the outcome. They were right that it would include increase inequality, uh, and the share going to the top 1% has gone to numbers between 20 and 25%. Uh, that's a two-fold increase, and the share going to the top one-tenth of 1% has increased three to four-fold. But unfortunately, this idea of trickle-down economics that everybody would benefit is absolutely wrong. And what has actually happened is median income, income in the middle, has stagnated. Income at the bottom is even worse. So in the middle, income today, the median income of, uh, in the United States adjusted for inflation is lower than it was a quarter of a century ago. And at the bottom, the minimum wage has not increased for 45 years. So I think that an economic system that doesn't increase standards of living for a majority of its citizens over a period of a quarter century, and at the bottom has people worse off than they were almost 50 years ago, is a failed economic system. I said to put it slightly differently. Assume in 1980, people had come to American people and said, I have a deal for you. I'm going to make some reforms. And the consequences of these, quote, reforms, everybody uses the word reforms. The consequence of these reforms are going to be that the bottom 90% of the population will see no increase in income over the next third of a century. But the economy will grow and the top 10% will see some increase in income. How many Americans would vote for that deal? But it wasn't sold that way. It was sold quite differently that it was actually everybody was going to be better off. And then it's been an incremental system of building a system of inequality. And that's going to be, that's one of the major themes. We built a system of inequality over a long period of time without ever thinking about it. But now as we look back on what's happened over a third of a century, we ought to be able to reflect on what's going on and say we have created, in a sense, a failed economic system. It's not the market economy that's at fault. It's the way we shaped the market economy, and we shaped it in ways that have worked poorly for a a very large fraction. So just a a, a few charts which, which illustrate this. And this, this shows the u shaped cur- curve, the kind of data that, that Piketty talked about last week, where the top 1% reached a very high peak right before the Great Depression. Not an accident. Not an accident. And then came down, and then, as you see, right before the, the 2009 crisis, uh, uh, went uh, up again to a very high level. But actually, uh, unlike other crises... This has been actually another one where, in the United States, we again tried trickle-down economics, and again it didn't work. Just to show you how bad things were, in the three years after Obama and the Federal Reserve declared the end of our recession in 2009, 91% of all the gains went to the top 1%. So if you want to understand why most Americans are not very, don't think that there was a, a swindle that, you know, the president said, oh, you know, the economy is growing again, wasn't true for 99% of Americans. Um, and this this is another graph showing the fact that in the middle, median half above, half below, the income in 2013 was actually lower than it was uh, a quarter century ago. You know, when you talk about median income, it's obviously an average, an average of different groups in our society, different demographic, social demographic groups. One particular demographic group that I feel a lot of empathy for are males. And uh, if you look at the median income of male workers in the United States, they're lower than they are 40 years ago. So if you want to understand why there is a certain amount of anger you sometimes see in, in American politics among uh, uh, males, particularly white males, uh, you get a uh, part of... Uh, 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 and that, that shows you part of the reasons. Well, income is only one aspect of inequality. There, inequalities in, in wealth are even greater. Uh, eight Americans who've inherited their money uh, from two families, uh, neither of which engaged in good practices... I mean, actually, really, uh, uh, I won't describe how bad they are, but those eight people have more wealth than the bottom 44% of America, which is testimony, of course, to how little wealth there is at the bottom as well as how much wealth there is at the top. Um, in the United States, we have high levels of inequality of health because we don't have a public health service. A national health service and uh, that means if you're poor if you're a poor kid uh, you don't you don't get access to health care Obama tried to rectify that but uh, uh, there's been enormous opposition and it's still many in many parts of the country particularly in the south if you are poor you do not have access to uh, to public health and it shows up in the statistics in a very dramatic way among Poor American, say, women, there's been a decline. Those who don't graduate from high school, for instance, there's been a decline in life expectancy of three, four years, Uh, as bad as what's been happening in Russia. Uh, You know, it it, it is really uh, amazing uh, what has gone on. And there are also inequalities in access to justice. One of of the essays in the book talks about these inequalities uh, in access to justice. So I jokingly say, every morning, Americans, young kids have to. uh, We have these rituals where you pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, and one of the lines uh, is "with justice for all." And we've now amending that to say "with justice for all who can afford it." Uh, So, so our view even of justice uh, is is changing. Now. Uh, Of all the aspects of inequality, I think the most invidious and most inconsistent with our self-image is inequalities of opportunity. That, you know, Americans like to think and others look at America and say it's a country of equal opportunity. And yes, there are some people who do make it from the bottom to the top or middle to the top. And there are some very talented immigrants who are able to make it from the bottom to the top. But when a social scientist or an economist talks about equality of opportunity, they're not talking about these exceptions. What they're talking about is what happens on average. And you ask that question, it turns out that America has less equality of opportunity than even old Europe. And in old Europe, I put England. Uh, that and and, and uh, we have much less equality of opportunity than than uh, say the Scandinavian countries. What, let me, let me, what that means, in effect, in statistical sense, is that uh, the life prospects of a young American are more dependent on the income and education of his parents than in other advanced countries. So I tell my students there's only one important decision you you can make in your life, and that's choosing the right parent. (laughs) And if you flub up on that, uh, the game is over. Uh, The fact that there is this relationship, that that the U.S. has such a low level of inequality, is not a surprise at all, because there's a systematic relationship between inequalities of income, outcomes... And inequality of opportunity; those countries that have a high level of inequality of incomes also have a low level of um, equality of opportunity. So, what you see in that little graph with little flags to sort of illustrate this is the Scandinavian countries have low levels of equal- inequality, high levels of equality of opportunity, and down at the bottom, uh, or up at the uh, up at the top, are the United States. Um, uh, where the uh, u k is up there too, with very low levels of equality of, uh, uh, of opportunity or uh, measures of mobility, there are other metrics, uh, all of which give uh, basically uh, the same, the same picture. Uh, the channels through which this uh, occur are, are are complicated, and i, I don 't have time uh, to, to talk ab- about them tonight. Maybe in the question period we 'll be able to get to it. Um, Let me spend just a few minutes now talking about some of the major ways in which our understandings of inequality have changed in the last 10 10 years or so. One of them has to do with the the observation I made earlier that inequality uh, fell uh, from the peak in the periods of uh, 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 the 50s, 60s, um, 70s, and... uh, That was what most economists had thought was going to happen. Kuznets was a great, great economist in the middle of the 20th century and got a Nobel Prize, uh, enunciated a a notion, uh, an empirical regularity, that has since been called Kuznets law. Uh, He was too modest to call it uh, a law, but but his paper uh, raised the idea, showed the empirical evidence, that uh, as countries in the early stages of development some parts of the country pull out from others and there's a growth in inequality we see that in China but then as they get more advanced inequality comes down as those that are parts of the country those individuals that are further behind catch up and so the inequality gets reduced so that's what most people thought was going to happen and it was happening in the 50s, 60s but then as those Diagram showed earlier in 19, around 1980, things started turning the other way. So there's been this repeal of the Kuznets Law. And there's a big debate going on what is the reason for it? Now, one aspect of that was that the period after World War II was an unusual period. There had been a high degree of social cohesion, uh, the countries could pull together. It was a period in which, uh, both in Europe and the United States, it was the fastest period of economic growth. Uh, but it was a period of shared prosperity where, while all segments of the economy grew, those at the bottom grew faster than those at the top. So uh, um, that was... It, 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 and it's, it's interesting when you reflect back on that and some of the economic policies in that era the top tax rates in the United States was 91%. If you listen to some of the debate today, you would say, 91%, why didn't anybody even show up to work? But in fact, as I say, not only did they show up to work, it was the fastest period of economic growth. Uh, by 1980, that period of social solidarity that had brought people together started to wane, had waned. The 70s was a difficult period, and... So that's when the ideas of Reagan and Thatcher came up of an alternative course. But this is where there are actually, uh, you might say, uh, uh, two different theories, two different interpretations of what happened. The facts are 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 clear. Beginning in 1980, we started to pull apart. We started to have this great divide. Piketty says, in effect, that what we are doing now is a restoration towards the normal laws of capitalism. Capitalism is naturally marked by high levels of inequality. And what I argue in the book that that's not true, that it's not an inevitable characteristic of capitalism, of a market economy. It's the consequences of the policies that, beginning around 1980, the set of policies that we pursued changed, and we created a peculiar kind of capitalism. It's not even, uh, a, 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 you know, uh, the 2008 crisis brought home the peculiar nature of our capitalism where, where we uh, 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 socialized losses and we privatized gains. That's not capitalism, the ordinary kind. Uh, the system of corporate governance is not ordinary capitalism where the management serves their own interest and not the interest of the corporation, not the interest of the workers, not the interest even of the shareholders. Uh, it's a kind of short-sighted capitalism that is really not functioning very well. So the basic argument that I try to put forward uh, in this book is that, it's as I say, it's not about the inherent characteristics of... Of capitalism. Uh, it's about the way we structure it. One of the reasons why I feel very confident about that is as we look around the world, what we see is very different levels of inequality, and inequalities of, of, of income, inequalities of, of opportunity. The economic forces are roughly similar in all the advanced countries. You know, the forces of technology, forces of globalization, these are global forces. And if it were just the laws of nature that were driving what's going on, then the outcomes would be similar in all the countries. But there are very large differences. In fact, in some countries, in recent years, there's been a significant decline in inequality. Even though the changes in technology are the same, as, and the nature of globalization is the same as what's happening us uh, in the United States, and in leading to to the high uh, high level of, of inequality. So, the implication of this is is it's, it's our policies, not the inexorable economic forces that are at play. Inequality is a choice. Uh, it is a result of how we structure the economy through our tax and expenditure policies, through our legal frameworks, our institutions, even the conduct of our monetary policy. So I may mean, just just uh, dwell on that for just a minute because mo- mo- most people don't think, well, what does monetary policy have to do with inequality? Well, the fact is that if you run a monetary policy that focuses on inflation and not on employment, growth, and jobs, you're going to wind up with a monetary policy where you tighten too soon and you wind up with wages over time going down, unemployment being higher, bargaining power of workers being weaker, and inequality increasing. And the interesting thing is that finally central banks are beginning to realize this. Janet Yellen, who's the chairman of the uh, Federal Reserve in the the United States, gave a a speech where she talked about uh, uh, inequality. Um, Very criticized by those who said she should focus on monetary policy, but the point is that inequality is very much related to monetary policy. And more recently, what I found quite striking was that, that Draghi recently gave a speech where he pointed out that QE leads to more inequality. It's one of the factors that you have to take into account in monetary... It may not stop you from engaging in QE, but if you look in the United States, how did QE work? It was another attempt at trickle-down economics, that you lower interest rates, get stock market prices up, you hope that the people whose wealth is going up will spend a little bit more money and everybody will, will, will as a result, benefit. But what had happened is unambiguous the case, wealth inequality increased as a result of QE. So uh, the, the thrust of all of this is that if you want to understand inequality and how we created it, we created it, you might say, brick by brick, step by step, over a third of a century by the amalgam of uh, uh, lots of different policies in all the areas that have created systems of corporate governance that have a short-termism, systems of monetary policy that focus more on inflation in the financial market than on employment and jobs. Um, uh, As you go down the list of every aspect of of our economic structure, you can see how they contributed uh, to the growth of inequality. A second major change has been, uh, we now, it used to be that we thought that if we want more equality, we'd have to give up on economic performance growth. And now we realize that these are complementary and this is not just a radical view or a left-wing view. The IMF, which is not exactly a radical institution, has been highlighting all over the world, saying, uh, emphasizing that countries need to worry about inequality because high levels of inequality are associated with poorer economic growth and more instability. There are many reasons for this, but I can see my time is running up, so uh, let me just... Uh, 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 go on and and just try to emphasize the the uh, um, uh, two more points. One is because inequality is the result of policies, it is shaped by our politics, and this is the critical vicious circle. Stronger in the United States than in other countries, but but other countries are following our lead. That when you have the level of economic inequality that you have in the united states and in some other countries it's going to get translated into political inequality and that political inequality is then get, going to get translated into policies that lead to high level even higher levels of economic inequality the last election in the united states 2012 presidential election each candidate spent over a billion dollars and the next Presidential election is expected to cost a multiple of that. We have a euphemism. We talk about campaign contributions as if they were like charitable contributions. But the real answer is when the banks make a campaign contribution, they're making an investment. And they get higher returns from those political investments than they do from their financial investments, which we know before the crisis were a disaster. So that's part of the process of how inequality shapes the politics, which then reinforces the, the economic inequality. It was really the refrain that was at the, the, article, uh, the title of my original uh, article. There are broad consequences uh, for this inequality. It's not just a moral issue. It does hurt our economy, it undermines our democracy, it divides our society. Uh, Today, increasingly in the United States, there's a perception that the basic necessities of a middle-class society are increasingly out of reach of large portions of the population. Things like the ability to send your children to college, retirement security, even the ability to uh, own a home. So, finally, let me just say that there's a certain I want to convey a certain kind of uh, urgency to to these issues uh, that incremental changes uh, won't solve the problem. They're important, but one needs a comprehensive agenda to to address them. So yes, it's important to improve equality of opportunity through education. It's important to raise the minimum wage from the level that exists been, you know, that hasn't, people at the bottom haven't gotten a pay raise for for almost a half century. Uh, Those are important steps. But unless we see what has happened as the result of of the way we've structured our whole economy, unless we go about rewriting the rules of our market economy in in a much more comprehensive, systematic way, we won't really solve the problem. And finally, a certain note of urgency. Uh, uh, I wish there was that note of urgency uh, last week. Uh, But the note of urgency, because if the wrong decisions are made, the consequences are going to be felt for a long time. The path where we are today is the result of a path that we began a third of a century ago. The decisions that we're going to be making now are going to bake in the nature of inequality for the next quarter of a century. So that's particularly why, while it's absolutely necessary to begin step by step, the fact is unless we have the vision of, of, of the alternative towards which we want to go, we won't make the kind of aggressive kinds of actions that are going to be necessary to turn us away from the kind of path that we've been on now, both in the United States and the UK, unfortunately, for a third of a century, uh, a path which I think is leading to a weaker economy, a, undermining our democracy and, in the end, dividing our society. Thank you.
2: Which I'm glad glad you ended on on a light, bright note. (laughs) Um, Isn't the problem with inequality, the criticism that was levelled at me when I tried to kind of hawk stories to my news editors at previous newspapers and things, um, I gave them a story about inequality, and they were like, well, inequality is just boring. No one really cares about inequality. It's too dreary uh, to get in the newspaper. And don't we see a reflection of that in what happened a week and a half ago, whereby people, when given the choice, in the ballot box, on a kind of, you know, what was pretty close, the closest thing we'll have for some time, as as being a referendum on, do you want a party which is going to hit back against inequality, or a party who is not ostensibly going to do that? They didn't vote for the fight against inequality. Why is that? Is Is it because people just are inclined... Not you know to choose hope over that kind of you know the inequality.
1: I mean, there, there there is an element of that 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 economics is the dismal science, and selling dismality is 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 never easy. Uh, so so I think there is you know the 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 kind of message of audacity of hope. You know, Reagan ran on "Good Morning America," and uh, you know. Uh, it was actually the beginning of the decline, but it was a good morning and and that uh, it was obviously a, a positive message but I think you shouldn 't over uh interpret it, one uh, an election because there's always personalities there's always oh, it was that Miliband's fault <laughs> well I I should say there are many elements <laughs> that go go into it i think that almost surely was a is a factor uh i think that uh, its persuasiveness, and you know, even though no serious economist takes austerity seriously, uh, there are some people here that do, uh, and you know, it, it, what, what is quite remarkable to me, you know, I had a lot of fights in, about austerity back when I was chief economist of the World Bank about the austerity that the IMF was imposing uh, in, in in East Asia, but. Eventually, the IMF saw the light, and they've been writing reports that actually when you have a significant decline, like after 2009, austerity lowers economic performance. Absolutely clear. The evidence is overwhelming on this. There are a few people who've who've, uh, written uh, articles about this fictional thing called expansionary contraction, you know, sort of oxymorons, but... Uh, we've even gone through all those cases of expansionary contractions. And guess what? Contractions are contractionary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but, but, but hold on. The UK, the UK isn't doing that badly at the moment. The IMF has said, you know, we, and Barack Obama said recently, you know, you're clearly doing something right. So austerity isn't surely necessarily the wrong thing. But
1: when you say, you know, in economics, the, the hardest thing is what we call counterfactual history. What would have happened? And you had uh, uh, a big advantage of the European Central Bank focused simply on inflation. So you had a better monetary policy. You know, you can't just count always on your neighbors having really bad policies. Uh, So they were focusing on inflation. You know, Trichet even raised the interest rates after the crisis, you know, and so... Why is that important? If they raise their interest rates, you're lowering your interest rate, your exchange rate becomes favorable. Those are circumstances in which, in spite of the cutback in domestic spending, what is go- what you- exports can grow and fill some of the gap. But one of the great uh, uh, successes of of uh, your, the Osborne and the conservative government is they talked about austerity but didn't always preach it. So if you... Talk one way, and then you cut back on your you cut back on your cutting back. Yeah. Uh, th- th- then you can say I'm doing austerity. You're not really doing austerity. Meanwhile, taking advantage of the mistakes going on in Europe, and then you can look reasonably good. But when I look at the UK economy, I don't see the rosy picture uh, because it's
2: the y- dismal science
1: again. Well, yeah. Dismal. What I see is. GDP lower than it was in two thousand eight. You know, a lost uh, more than half decade.
2: GDP is lower, but uh, GDP is high. But GDP per capita, GDP
1: per capita is lower than it was. That's not a great success. Um, uh, What I see is is wages, median income stagnating, productivity not doing very well. All these things are 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 not exactly. Metrics that would say, "Boy, was that a success?"
2: So, so what's in store then? We we have just elected a majority conservative government. What does that mean for the next five years? Whether it's inequality or whether it's
1: our recovery here in the UK? Well, I think first you, you need to pray a lot. Um, <laughs> that's where I would I, I, would, I would begin. Uh, uh, the um, uh, I I I think. Uh, that there is serious risk if what one reads in the newspaper that there is going to be another dose of austerity, you know, a real dose now. Not that now that they have aren't constrained. Yeah, the fake austerity. Uh, Then um, you know, recognizing that the global economy is relatively weak right now, there's a slowdown in what has been the engine of global economic growth, which is uh, China. Uh, emerging markets, recognizing that uh, the ECB now has finally come to very low interest rates. So you're not going to have that competitive advantage, and that, that means your exchange rate will be will be higher. And um, even the United States economy, uh, you know, the last quarter we probably had negative growth when the, the, the preliminary numbers had 0.2% growth, but the revised numbers will probably come in negative. People are expecting uh, the next quarter, I mean, this quarter, to be also very weak. So, as I look at the global economy, it's not very strong. And in that context, you're not going to be saved in the way that you were saved by the mistakes of other countries. You're embedded in a world environment that is not very uh, hopeful.
2: God, well, we're definitely going to have to pray, then. Um, So the paradox, though, in what you were saying about the UK recovery the first time around is that we had a Bank of England that acted pretty quickly. And what it acted with was quantitative easing, which, as you said uh, in your speech, is something that exacerbates inequality. And that may well go down in history, you know, QE in the UK and indeed elsewhere, may, may go down in history as one of the biggest single events in terms of distributing wealth to a particular part of the population because it, it is those who held assets, it's those who had shares, who had houses, particularly in London, who have done very well out of quantitative easing, and everyone else hasn't necessarily. So... And, in
1: fact, it's even worse. For people who were prudent in their retirement and bought government bonds, they're, they're being devastated in both the United States and in other countries where they're QE. So it's, it's actually hurt them. I mean, the people who save prudently are, are in very difficult position.
2: But it, is the point that they should have done it differently? Did, I mean, no, we, we, we,
1: we want people to be prudent, but then you change no, the, the rules the, of the game.
2: The Bank of England, should the Bank of England have acted differently? You know, should it have bought up, should it have done a kind of helicopter drop uh, on the population? Should it have started going out and buying people's houses? In fact, I worked out, actually, that QE in the UK, the Bank of England, with the amount of money they spent, they could have bought every single house In Scotland and Northern Ireland, (laughs) if they wanted to, so should they have gone out and done that and just kind of given the money directly to people? I mean, you know,
1: I I, I think they should have been more aware of the uh, of, of the distributive consequences and had think about policies like that. I don't, you know, one of the reasons why QE did not have the kinds of positive effects as big effects as one had hoped. Uh, You know, even though it was massive, in the United States, the balance sheet increased four times. Uh, You know, we're talking about trillions of dollars, and it had a little effect, but very, very little from this trickle down. Uh, One of the reasons is the credit channel was broken, and they didn't do anything about that. In other words, SME lending, lending to small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, actually years after the crisis began, years after QE began, was still 20% below the pre-crisis level. So they didn't fix the system. And in fact, in some ways, they made it worse because they allowed the banks to merge together. And so competition in the financial sector in the United States was actually lower. So when it came to giving mortgages, at least in the United States, where I do know the data, what happened is that lower interest rates didn't translate into lower mortgage. What it really did is translate into higher profits for the banks. Okay.
2: Could I, the, the, during your presentation, you had the, the, one of the Piketty uh, charts, the one about income. I don't know, can we, can we put it up, the sure. income inequality? Uh, oh, there we are. <laughs> By magic, I didn't even touch nothing um, I'm curious about whether you think what we're seeing here is a curve that's just going to carry on going up and down as people get frustrated by inequality when it goes up, they impose more... Because that, you know, that, in part, is what happened, presumably, in the 1930s. People finally, you know, politicians finally imposed policies that were more redistributive. You had things like welfare states being imposed. Are we just going to have perpetual curves like this way into the future?
1: Well, first, let, let me try to emphasize, it's not just the redistributed policies. It was the way the whole economy worked. So one of the things what we did in the 30s uh, is that we passed in the United States something called the Wagner Act, which gave more bargaining power to workers. So we, we, we allowed... Uh, uh, we encouraged more collective bargaining, and that had a big effect. Uh, we,
2: and Glass-Steagall.
1: And Glass-Steagall, well, which, which... was. Splitting up the banks. That's right. So, so, we did a lot of things to change our economic structure. And that's why, you know, the big agenda right now is this agenda that uh, we came out with, with last uh, Tuesday in Washington uh, called Rewriting the Rules. Um, so, it was an, a, 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 an agenda for showing how, you, by rewriting the rules, you can get more equality before tax and transfer. And it's not just education, that's important. Uh, it's not just the minimum wage, that's important. It's, it's the way our corporate governance, our financial system, oh, right. our... It's the lab, legal system. Uh, well. Labor institutions, bankruptcy, all these work together. And it's gotten a lot of resonance uh, in the United States. So, yeah, to go back to the, this wave uh, thing... Um, I think there is something about that. Albert Hirschman actually wrote something about the, the waves in the political economy and uh, in a different area. And, and um, I think there is something about that. What worries me today and distinguishes today from, say, the Gilded Age, and the Gilded Age where inequality got very high, and then we responded by um, passing all the antitrust laws in the Progressive Era. Um, what's different today is the power of money in politics is greater than it ever, probably exactly. ever been and that worries me uh, will we be able to bring that down
0: Hi, I'm just a normal person and not a one percenter what can I do
2: Okay, good question <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and the lady there
3: Yes, I'd like to talk. Um, ask about uh, the concerns about low productivity and uh, wages staying quite low. One of the characteristics particularly in this country we've seen is that we've had a high level of immigration from Europe where there are not very many jobs. Um, together with uh, a lot of people coming off the unemployment registers here, we've seen unemployment drop very sharply. Um, and a starting of a change of feeling that levels of 5 6% unemployment are perfectly normal and reasonable, um, when 1970s, 60s and 70s, you might have thought 3% was the sort of ideal rate of unemployment for turnover. To what extent is this actually quite a large driver of why wages have stayed, um, average wages have stayed perhaps particularly uh, for non-middle-class jobs, Relatively low because you've got actually an enormous number of new people coming off the job market. So compa- competition from from China. Okay. What 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 what, what is that um, contributing? Hi, Hi. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Professor. I have a couple of questions. First, I mean, I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't agree more on the, on the uh, inequality of opportunity. There should be equality of opportunity. But the, the question I have is, what about the free rider problem? So, in the other types of inequality that you've outlined, so, for example, in some of the European countries, you're having problems now because of the welfare state and there's a sense of entitlement. So, that's having... That, I think, is one of the arguments against having this active debate on inequality. And the my free, second question...
2: The free rider problem...
1: Yeah. Uh, somebody who's not in the one percent, what can they do to to influence the outcome? So, uh, I guess the best thing you could do is to become in the one percent. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, that's more likely to have any other uh, uh, impact than anything else. But and if, have the right
2: if, parents as well.
1: And have the right pairings. I mean, that's easy. So, uh, easy. so uh, but if you can't do those two things, uh, the the uh, I think civil society action, uh, political action, is the only way this is going to change. Uh, and, and I think what, in my own mind, and I, I don't want to comment on the British election, but um, feel free. You, <laughs> what one sees is that elections can be very close and the outcomes can depend on voter turnout. And it could have been different if, if there had been different turnouts. Of of those (laughs) votes, but uh, so at least in my mind, um, the kind of civic society actions that make uh, governments more aware of of the consequences of these rules and make it more difficult for them to accept. So, let me give you one example. Right now, as I say, there is an attempt to, to rewrite the rules through TTIP. And that this will is the trade deal the trade deal it 's really a fundamental changing change in the way the rules of re, re, that, that govern the, how regulations that affect health labor, labor almost anything uh, uh, are are made it 's taking them away from democratically elected government and moving them up to a, a higher level and, and to trade negotiators and then making it reach it Very difficult to change with, with a change in economic circumstances. So, in my mind, it's really important for there to be a strong civil society reaction to say, you know, uh, particularly the investment agreement, the intellectual property provisions of that... So are, get out
2: there and protest, uh, uh, Yeah,
1: uh, you know... The United States set a good example in Seattle when we uh, had a group, good protest against the WTO initiative back in 1999. I think that's a kind of example that others ought wow. to... Uh, take uh, to the streets. Take, really take the streets. Maybe with not quite so much violence, but still. Yeah. <laughs> and the second, uh, the second
2: question was about the, district, the labor market and changes in the labor yeah. market and the way that's...
1: Yeah, traditionally, this is actually where economists began the analysis. Economists began the analysis by focusing on Demand and supply factors, and so they say, okay, you, there's an increase in the supply of labor, migration, uh, trade, uh, indirect competition from workers from other countries, other developing countries uh, through the globalization process. Those are important. I, I don't, I don't want to minimize the importance, and they do have effects. On distribution of income, and that's related actually to the trade issue. That, that uh, you know, the, those who are advocating these trade measures don't really reveal one of the strongest uh, theorems in economics, which is if you had actually perfectly free trade in perfectly functioning markets, and we don't have perfectly functioning markets, so I me to make that clear. But if you had that, and the kind of models that the advocates of trade often argue for, the wages of unskilled workers in the UK would be the same as the wages of unskilled workers in China. And, you know, that's not a good selling point, obviously, for free trade. Um, but I, and I haven't heard Obama saying, you know, this is as, as one of the great achievements, that he's going to get the wages of our unskilled workers down to those of, of China. He's not been actually selling that. Uh, as our, of. Of a trade agreement, but uh, that's, there there is a strong force in that in that direction, unless you take other measures to to mitigate against that, and you can take certain actions, but but that won't happen on their own. But the point I've been emphasizing is that. Uh, it's really about the rules of the game, including these trade rules, uh, the rules of, of uh, uh, corporate governance, uh, competition policy, and a, co- a set of issues that we haven't talked uh, uh, enough about, education, <sighs> okay. and, 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 and that makes people have skills that make them able to compete with, with, with others. You just have one, I... minutes, one minute. It's
2: one minute for the final uh,
1: couple of questions. Okay. Uh, on the... St- question about whether the kind of uh, agenda that I've talked about would weaken growth because it would destroy incentives. Um, first, let me emphasize what I said before. The evidence is overwhelming that equality and growth are complements. And so if you, if you, if you look at the ways that inequality has grown in the United States and in other advanced countries, it's actually been destructive of economic growth and economic performance. Uh, If you had taxed the uh, bankers at a higher rate, uh, would it have meant that we would have had less banking? Maybe, but that would be good for the economy. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, if you look at what's happening to the financial sector, uh, it went... Roughly, you know, from two and a half, three percent of GDP to eight percent. It went from uh, it went to the point before the crisis. It was getting about almost forty percent of all corporate profits. There was no evidence that that kind of income led to any improvement in economic performance. Uh, you know, the financial sector talks about all the innovations uh, they had. And um, you might enjoy this particular uh, repartee. Uh, 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 Volcker, Paul Volcker once said, you know, there was not a single innovation in America's financial market that had led to improved economic performance, except the ATM machine. (laughs) (laughs) And then I always point out, that the ATM machine was a British innovation, not American Ah, innovation. There we are. So there was not a single innovation of America's financial market. And at least you have the ATM machine. Well, that's
2: that's a very positive note on which to to end. Good old Britain. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you for your questions. I'm so sorry we didn't get to take all of those questions, but they were absolutely brilliant, the ones we did, did have. Thank you uh, for coming. Uh, Thank you so much to Professor Stiglitz. It's been a fascinating evening. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Squared podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Find out more by going to www.intelligencequared.com forward slash partnerships.